Good morning. If you are if you are new to cultivate this morning, I want to take this opportunity to welcome you. My name is Dave, and I will be giving the message this morning. And if you're one of the regular attendees here, I want to welcome you also. Now, last week we began a 13-week journey through the book of James. It, it is a New Testament letter who is, that was written by the younger brother of Jesus to Jewish believers who were scattered throughout the Roman Empire and because of persecution. James is full of practical, everyday wisdom for how the gospel shapes, encourages, and changes us. James was written early in the first century, probably as early as uh, A.D. 45, which would have made it the first New Testament letter to be written. Uh, it was written at a time when the church was still mostly Jewish. There's almost nothing in the book in the way of doctrinal development. This would come later as the church would become more Gentile in its makeup and theological issues would be raised with the influx of Gentiles into the church. But the doctrines that James does express are in full harmony with the rest of the New Testament. Now, there are some people who have tried to pit James against Paul in the whole debate about works versus faith. But as we'll see in about four weeks, James and Paul were in complete agreement. Now, the letter of James is regarded as the wisdom literature of the New Testament, and it is often compared to the Old Testament book of Proverbs, but it also has a lot in common with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Uh, throughout the letter, James develops the theme of the characteristics of true faith, and he uses those characteristics as a series of tests to help his readers evaluate the reality of their relationship to Jesus Christ. Uh, he seeks to challenge believers to examine the quality of their daily lives in terms of attitudes and actions. Uh, genuine faith will produce changes in a person's conduct and character, and the absence of those changes is a symptom of dead faith. Now, James begins his letter with the subject of trials. And last week in his prayer, John used the term suffering well. He prayed that we would be able to suffer well for Jesus. Jay kind of picked up on that theme in his message and ran with it, and we're going to keep running with it today. Now, I'm not going to rehash Jay's sermon from last week. If you missed it or if you've forgotten it, you can always listen to it on the podcast. But last week, we looked at the why of suffering well. And there are a couple of reasons that I want to review why we should suffer well. And one of those reasons is because Jesus suffered well. In 2 Peter 1, chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, Peter tells us, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Now, I think it's safe to say that Jesus suffered as no one else has ever suffered. Yet he did not 
he did not respond sinfully. Instead, he entrusted himself to God. He trusted God and he bore good fruit. And he is our example in these situations also. And if we want to be like him, then we are called to suffer well. We cannot be like Jesus without suffering well. So I guess the bottom line here would be no pain, no gain. Now, a second reason for us to suffer well is found in last week's text, and it's because there is a link between suffering well and spiritual maturity. In James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, he said, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, you will notice there is a progression here from trials to perseverance and then to maturity. This progression, however, is not automatic because trials can often produce bitterness, especially if we don't have the right attitude, and perseverance can sometimes lead to futility especially if you don't have the right strategy. If you want to ride off into the sunset and you start heading east, all the perseverance in the world is not going to get you there because you have adopted the wrong strategy. So the progression of trials, perseverance, and maturity, in order for that to occur, one has to suffer well. And in order to suffer well, one needs to know how. That takes wisdom. And that is the know-how that James teaches us in these next few verses. So let's look at our text in James chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 12. And if you don't have a Bible with you, it is on page 847 uh, in the Bibles in the chair underneath, underneath you or in front of you. So James chapter 1, verses 5 through 12. Let's read. Let's go ahead and read that. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom fails, and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial Because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, James begins here with a conditional clause. If any of you lacks wisdom, and who doesn't? Now, this is not to imply that any any of you has no wisdom, but simply that one doesn't have all the wisdom that he or she needs to persevere. And the wisdom to which James is referring 
reflects the Jewish concept of wisdom as skillful living before God rather than the Greco-Roman notion of wisdom as being chiefly intellectual. In Jewish thought, wisdom is practical. It's It's a practical, what do I do next kind of thing. It is common when we're under pressure to feel deep frustration and to be uncertain of what to do. Now, there is also an implied assumption here that the reader wants the kind of wisdom that knows what to do next, and so James proceeds with the main clause. He says, you should ask God. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I am not crazy about the way the NIV translates this here. You should ask God, because it doesn't really capture the full force of what James is saying. It almost sounds like a suggestion or like James is giving some kind of advice, right? Well, he's not. In the original Greek, James uses a third-person imperative, which we do not have an exact equivalent for in English. Now, the NIV translators have used a second-person personal pronoun, you, perhaps partly in an effort to avoid using a more gender-specific third-person personal pronoun, he or she, him or her. My issue, however, is not with them using the wrong person personal pronoun or even with the attempt at gender-neutral language because what James is saying here does apply equally to both men and women. My issue is more or less with that word should, because should is a subjunctive, which is a verb of possibility or suggestion. You might do this. You could do that. Now, should may be considered a strong suggestion, perhaps even a recommendation, but it is still a subjunctive. James doesn't use a subjunctive. He uses an imperative, which is a verb of command. If you want to command somebody to do something, and assuming you have the authority to do it, you use an imperative. Now, in English, we only have second-person imperatives. So if I want you to do something, I will tell you to do it. doesn't mean you'll do it, but that's beside the point. Parents go through this all the time with their children. Eat your dinner. Do your homework, take a bath, go to bed. Those are all second-person imperatives. English does not have third-person imperatives like some other languages do, such as New Testament Greek. And so translating them into English can be a little challenging and sometimes awkward. Now, some translations will render a third-person imperative as let him do this or let her do that, let them eat cake, as Marie Antoinette once said. We know how that worked out. But even that still doesn't capture the full force of what James is trying to say. The point is this. If anyone lacks wisdom, it is imperative that he or she ask God for it. You want wisdom, you must ask God. If you want wisdom, not asking God is not an option. Now, James continues with a relative clause describing a little bit more about God, who gives generously to all, 
That means that God gives generously without reservation or hesitation, and he gives without finding fault. In other words, as Doug Moo said, he does not reprimand us for our past failures or remind us endlessly of the value of the gifts that he gives. I'm going to touch on that again here in just a moment. And then James gives, gives us an assured result of asking, and it will be given to you. So the, con- the two conceptually balanced main cause and effect clauses here in verse 5 are, are this. You must ask God, and it will be given to you. But... James does not want us to imagine or assume that this is an automatic guarantee. There's a catch here. What's the catch? When you ask, you must believe and not doubt. In other words, faith must be involved. And in the rest of the paragraph, verses 6 through 8, he offers three parallel reasons for why faith must be involved. The first reason is the instability of doubt. This reason is, he, the first reason is that one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Now, this reason is more illustrative than causal, but it still gives us a sense in which it provides a reason for James' command to ask in faith because a person who is vacillating between God and someone or something else, what they want one day may not be what they want the next. And so, therefore, why would God grant the petitions of someone who is that fickle? James is talking about avoiding the kind of doubt that can't even decide what one wants and keeping one's mind made up. I heard a story one time told about a Viet, by a Vietnam War veteran about a man in his platoon. He noticed the guy was wearing a crucifix, a star of David, and an image of Buddha. And he asked the guy about it, and the guy said, Look, I'm not taking any chances. I don't want to offend anybody. His mind was not made up even about which God he served or who he was faithful to. Now, here is an example from my own life. Back when I was single, I was always told, when you meet the right woman, you'll know she's the one. Now, I am somewhat of an analytical thinker, not entirely left-brained, but I do tend to think logically. And if you were to look at my sermon notes, you might notice that they are, out, they are laid out very systematically. It's just the way I reason things out and try to present them. So being somewhat of an analytical thinker, when people would tell me, when you meet the right woman, you'll know she's the one, I always questioned that. I wanted to know, how do you know? And the answer was, you just know. (laughs) And I never really understood that. And then in July of 2000, I met Twyla. Now, I didn't know it right away, and neither did she, but apparently God did. And by January of 2001, I knew that she was the one. And you know how I knew? I just knew. (laughs) 
because we had connected in such a way that there was no doubt in my mind about whether it was her or someone else. I didn't have to debate whether she was one of many, one of several, one of a few. I knew that she was the one and the only one. I proposed to her exactly one year to the date after we met, and on April 27th of 2002, we were married. We just celebrated our 15th wedding anniversary uh, this past Thursday. Thank you. I was torn whether to get her an anniversary card or a congratulations card. (laughs) When we exchanged our vows, one of those vows was forsaking all others, which means I pledged my undivided loyalty and my unwavering faithfulness to her and she to me. And in the same way, if you want God to answer your prayer for wisdom, you have got to be loyal to him and to no other God, to no one or anything else. That is what James is talking about here. Now, a second reason that James gives for asking in faith is the ineffectiveness of doubt. He says that person, because doubting makes our asking ineffective, James says that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. The person who vacillates between God and anyone or anything else cannot and should not expect God to answer his or her prayers. Why not? Because of the next reason, and that is the double-mindedness of doubt. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. Now, I love that word double-minded because in the original Greek, it literally means having two minds. Now, the Greek word for mind, psyche, can also be translated as life. So we're talking about someone having two minds and essentially trying to live a double life kind of reminds me of one of those TV movies of the week about a guy who is married to multiple women at the same time, none of whom know about the others. I've seen at least three different versions of that movie, one with Bo Bridges, one with Robert Foxworth, and one with Connie Selica, where they've reversed the genders. Maybe you've seen another version of it. That's the thing about those TV movies of the week or even those Lifetime Movie Channel movies. They take the same handful of scripts and they just keep recycling them. Um, You take an old script, you change the names, the locations, and a few of the plot details, and voila, you've got a movie of the week or a lifetime movie. And I don't mean to sound cynical here, uh, but the Hallmark Channel is just as bad with their script recycling. (laughs) Okay, just as good. They... If you've seen one, you've pretty much seen them all. Originality is a rare commodity these days. But in this particular TV movie, you've got a guy who is effectively trying to live a double life or even a triple life between two or more families, but it never works out for him. He eventually gets caught, and it blows up in his face. And if you 
are double-minded and trying to live a double life between God and someone or something else, it is not going to work for you either. It's eventually going to blow up in your face the same way it blew up for Bo Bridges, Robert Foxworth, and Connie Selica. So don't even go there. Now, I want to issue a little bit of a word of caution here because the key to asking in faith is not in the amount of faith that you have, but rather who your faith is in. So don't get caught up in a name-it-and-claim-it theology that says that we should know God's will for every single detail of our lives and then demand it of him, expressing our confidence that we have what we've requested, even when external circumstances completely contradict it. That is not faith. That is manipulation. That is not the gospel. That is trying harder. Trying harder treats faith like it is some kind of currency. And if we accumulate or have enough currency, then we can use that as leverage with God to get him to do our bidding. And it also doesn't say much about God. Because a God who will not answer our prayers simply because we don't have enough currency, because we don't have enough faith, does not sound like a God who gives generously and does not find fault. It's like he's standing there listening to your prayer and you think, okay. He he says, okay. Is that the best you got? Is that all the faith you have? Forget it. No. No doesn't say much about God, now does it? So don't assume that if God doesn't answer your prayer in the way that you're expecting or hoping for, that it's because you didn't have enough faith. After all, Jesus himself prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet the cup didn't pass from him. Was it because Jesus didn't have enough faith? Absolutely not. Jesus had enough faith to say to his father, not my will, but your will be done. That is true faith. That, that is the kind of faith. If, that is the kind of faith that James is talking about here. And that's the gospel. It is about trusting in God and resting in Christ, not about trying harder. Now, in verses 9 through 12, James gives us some results of wisdom. And one of those evidence, one of those results is the evidence of wisdom. And one of the evidences is taking pride in one's trials. Now, taking pride here in this context is not talking about arrogant self-boasting you know, of the self-important, but it's talking about a joyous pride that is possessed by the person who values what God values. And as far as financial trials are concerned, both rich and poor must find life's meaning and take pride in something other than material circumstances. James tells believers in humble circumstances to take pride in their high position. If 
So if you're poor, you should focus on your high position in Christ. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation. Now, there is some debate here about whether the rich to which James is referring is a believer or not. And, you know, there are arguments on both sides. I am inclined to, t- to lean toward the notion that they are believers uh, because the terms believer and take pride in found in verse 9 are linked grammatically to the rich in verse 10. But there's another reason as well. As we're going to see on July 2nd when we get to chapter 5, James tell the, tells the rich who clearly are not believers to do something completely different from what he's telling them here, which would be totally contradictory if the, if the rich here are not believers. So he reminds the rich that both they and their wealth are temporary and transitory. He tells them to remember that you are simply a human being destined to die whose only hope is in Jesus Christ. Keep these things in mind and your financial situation will be irrelevant. Now, I want to give you an example of this, and that would be the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul had experienced both poverty and wealth, but he learned the secret to contentment. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul said, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. What is Paul's secret? We see in verse 13, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Who gave Paul his strength? Who gave Paul his strength? Thank you. The same one who gives us ours. When we have Christ and we find our contentment in him, we can persevere in any trial. And the second evidence of wisdom is perseverance itself. In verse 12, James says, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Now, I want to give you a pop quiz here. Is the person who perseveres under trial, does he persevere because he is blessed or is he blessed because he perseveres? (laughs) How many would say that he perseveres because he's blessed? How many would say that he's blessed because he perseveres? Okay, if you have both hands up, you pass, the, you pass the quiz. It is both. Because notice that James doesn't say blessed will be the one who perseveres under trial. He says blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. It's present tense. We have a present blessing in that we have already received Jesus Christ, but there is also a future blessing as well. And that is the reward of perseverance. In the, second, in the rest of that verse, James says, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to, 
to those who love him. The crown of life is the crown that is life. Jesus said in John's gospel, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. He also said in Mark chapter 10, Truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields. And then he throws in that kicker. Along with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. This is one of the things that kept the Apostle Paul going in his trials. Because in his second letter to the Corinthians, he said, therefore we do not lose heart. Though though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles, what was Paul talking about there? (laughs) Everything he went through and he calls it light and momentary troubles? How could he call them light and momentary troubles? Well, because they they are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. That far outweighs what? His light and momentary troubles. So, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So, The big idea of this passage and of our message this morning is simply this. If we lack the wisdom to suffer well, we must ask God for it, and he will give it to us, but only if we believe and do not doubt. So how do we apply this to our daily lives? Well, the book of James is full of, the entire book is a practical book that is pretty much all application, So I just want to summarize some of the points that we've already been made. The wisdom to suffer well is not a human wisdom, but God's wisdom. And the only way to get it is to go straight to the source. And if we ask him for it, he will give it to us, but only if we believe and do not doubt. Now, the key to asking in faith is in the object of our faith, and not in the quantity of our faith or anything else. It would not be appropriate for God to answer the prayers of someone who vacillates between allegiance to him and loyalty to someone else, even if that something else is in the amount of faith that we have, because what that person wants today may not be what he wants tomorrow. And so, therefore, anyone that fickle should not expect God to answer his or her prayers. Now, if we have found ourselves vacillating between one position or the other, how do we correct that? Well, I think Joshua kind of gave us a good clue in, in the book of Joshua. He said, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. In other words, which God are you going to trust in? Which God will you be faithful to? Joshua said, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And 
In what ways does this passage train us to be righteous? Well, as I mentioned, as I mentioned at the beginning, James is often compared to the book of Proverbs. And in Proverbs, the writer says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your path straight. Too often, our trials will prompt one of two responses. One is groaning and complaining, and the other is rugged individualism. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. That's the American way, right? Neither of those responses, however, contributes to Christian maturity. In fact, if anything, they only make matters worse because either of those, neither of those responses expresses a dependence on God. Now, God does not tempt anyone to sin, but he will, he can and will use our trials to remind us of our absolute and total dependence on him. In a 1999 interview with Playboy magazine, then Minnesota governor and former pro wrestler Jesse Ventura raised a lot of hackles with a comment that he made about organized religion being a sham and a crutch for weak-minded people who need strength in numbers. I'm not sure exactly what Ventura meant by organized religion or weak-minded people, though whatever he meant by it, I'm pretty sure he didn't mean it as a compliment. And while I'm no fan of Jesse Ventura, if you put the emotions aside and really think about it for just a moment, he was absolutely right. Organized religion is a sham, and it is for weak-minded people. Why? Because organized religion tells weak-minded people to simply try harder. But that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't tell anyone to try harder. On the contrary, the gospel of Jesus Christ says, stop trying and start trusting. And it is not for people who are weak-minded. It is for people who, like myself, are totally helpless and cannot pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. We need someone else to pull us up by our bootstraps. That person is Jesus Christ. The gospel is for those of us who are otherwise who would otherwise be dead in our sins and would have no strength in or of ourselves to persevere under our trials or to finish well that's me and if that's you then why not say yes to Jesus invitation Jesus said come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy 
and my burden is light. No one or nothing else can make and keep that promise. Jesus is the only one who can make that promise and keep it. So why not trust him to do it? Are you willing to put your complete faith and trust in him? If you haven't done so already, will you decide now to follow him? I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back, no turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back, no turning back. Will you decide now to follow Jesus? Will you decide now to follow Jesus? Will you decide now to follow Jesus? No turning back, no turning back. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gift that you have given to us through Jesus Christ, the gift of salvation by grace through faith in him and him alone. We recognize that he is the only one who can forgive us of our sins and promise us eternal life. He is the only one who can pull us up by our bootstraps to help us to persevere in our trials and to finish well and to, and to suffer well. And so, Lord, if it, be, if it be our destiny, and it is, to suffer for you, we just pray that we, you would help us to suffer well, that you would be honored and glorified in and through our suffering. We want to become more like you than we, like you, are going to have to suffer well. And so we, we want to confess before you that we have not followed you with undivided loyalty and faithfulness.
We ask that you would forgive us and that you would cleanse us of our double-mindedness. Help us to stop trying to live two two different lives, Lord, between you or someone or something else. We pray that you would just remove our hearts of stone, give us a heart of flesh, a heart that is able to say yes to you and that is able to follow you. No turning back. No turning back. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.